Well, it's uh, great to be back here again. If you've got your Bibles, if you could please turn to Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4 and verse 14. Uh, This is the second in a two-part series that we're doing, looking at the topic of true freedom. Uh, Last week, we looked at the issue of personal freedom, and uh, we looked at Mark chapter 8, and we saw that true freedom is really found in Jesus. And actually, ironically, it's when we lay down our lives uh, for Jesus that we actually become truly free. Now, this week, I want to look at the issue of uh, community or corporate freedom. Does this personal freedom that we find in Christ, does it have uh, any relevance uh, towards the community that we live in and that the society uh, that we uh, belong to? And uh, we're going to read from Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him, and they were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut up for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah did not, uh, was not sent to any of them, but to the widow at Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Let's pray. Lord, we pray as we come to your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. We pray that you would direct us. We pray that you would catalyze us into your plans and purposes. And all God's people said, I want to look at this passage under three headings. The moment the mandate, and the misopportunity. The moment, the mandate, and the misopportunity. Let's begin with the moment. The context here is that Jesus is turning, returning to his uh, local region with some really good press 
behind us. Uh, verse 14 tells us that news about him had preceded his arrival. After centuries of inactivity, finally God was on the move, and there were stories about people being healed and water being turned into wine and one speaking with authority. And this flurry of activity was really centered on Jesus. And so there was a real buzz around Jesus. And Luke carefully records that not only does Jesus return to his local region, but verse 16 tells us that he returned to Nazareth specifically, the very place where he had been brought up and the very community that were least likely to believe exaggerated claims about himself. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus, as was his custom, went into the synagogue. And he stood uh, and was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And having received that scroll, he turned to the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Now, for many of us, we think, well, well obviously Jesus was doing the reading, right? He was, he, he was reading the scripture, and then he was going to hand it back to the guy and sit down, and then somebody else was going to speak. But what actually happened in first century Palestine was that actually everybody would stand for the reading of the scripture, everybody would stand and hear it, and then the person that expounded the scripture would actually sit down while everybody else remained standing. How things have changed in 2,000 years, right? And so when Jesus sits down, he's sitting down not because he's finished, but because he is about to begin. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And friends, this sermon was like no other sermon in church history. Firstly, it was the shortest sermon ever delivered. The sermon was this. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Thank you and good night. And your laughter is giving you away. I know what some of you are thinking. Can we have Jesus back? Can we, can, can, can we have one of those sermons, please? We're looking forward to the, the single line sermon. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. But this sermon was like no other sermon in church history, not simply because it was the shortest sermon ever delivered, but because you know that the essence of good preaching is really you, you, you read the text and then you explain the text. That's essentially what good preaching is. You read the text and you explain the text. You read the text and you explain the text. But here, Jesus reads the text and says, I am the text. He read the text and then he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And friends, this is an absolutely monumental moment. In his very hometown, the place that wouldn't believe exaggerated claims about himself, Jesus reads this text and says, I am the text. And he is claiming to be nothing less than the true Messiah. He is claiming to be nothing less than God himself himself. 
becoming flesh and dwelling amongst us. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So firstly, the moment. Secondly, the mandate. When Jesus is handed the scroll of Isaiah, Luke tells us that, that he carefully finds the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he carefully finds this passage in Isaiah, because this passage communicates the very mandate that Jesus Christ was carrying. So what is this mandate? Well, in these verses, uh, in Isaiah 61, there are a prophetic description or a prophetic echo of the Jubilee Mandate. Now, the Jubilee Mandate was something that was instituted in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, and it was an event that happened every 50 years. At the end of seven uh, uh, sabbatical years, in, in the 50th year, so seven sabbatical years, and that was every seven years, so seven times seven, 49, in the 50th year, you would have a year of jubilee. And this was a really big deal. You, you would likely only experience a jubilee year once in your lifetime. And a jubilee year involved two big things. The first thing was, and the thing that we're most familiar with, was the cancellation of debt, Right? When the trumpet was blown and it was declared to be a year of jubilee, all debt was canceled. Wouldn't you love that trumpet to blow this morning? I mean, wouldn't that be cool? Could you imagine this guy from Cape Town shows up and he blows a trumpet and he says, I declare a year of jubilee and instantly your credit card debt and your car repayments and your bond and, and your college fees that you need to pay for your kids, right? It goes instantly. This is incredible. All debts are canceled. Phenomenal. And that's what a lot of us know about the year of Jubilee. But the year of Jubilee didn't just involve cancellation of debt. It really did. And that's really good news, particularly if you're in debt, right? It's really good news. But it also involved a second thing. And the second thing was that you were to be restored to the place that God intended you to be in. You see, when the people of God moved into the promised land, it wasn't just like a free-for-all that you just got land wherever you wanted. No, the, the land was carefully allotted. And your piece of land was placed in your family and in your clan and in your tribe. And so it wasn't just that you had a piece of land, but it was your very community, the people that you already meant to hang out with, the people that were there to help you and, and develop you and nurture you to become the person that you were meant to be in God. Now, if you accumulate a debt, right, like you maxed out the credit card, and then you like dipped into the bond to clear the credit card, and then you've maxed out the bond, what do you have to do? You've got to sell the land, right, to clear the bond. And so what happened is if you got into debt, you would then have to sell your land to get out of the debt. But when you lost your land, you didn't just lose your land. You lost your proximity to your family and to your clan and to your tribe. You were dislocated from community. And if things got really bad, like you'd sold your land, but you were still accumulating more debt, what you were left to do was then simply do what? Sell what? Yourself. 
Now, God was really anti-slavery, and he wouldn't allow the people of God to purchase slaves. That wasn't allowed. So if you needed to sell yourself, you couldn't sell yourself within Israel. You had to go sell yourself into a foreign land in order to clear your debt. But when in once in 50 years, the trumpet is blown and a year of jubilee is declared, the requirement was that your family and your clan and your tribe would go find you and they would buy you out of slavery. They would bring you home. They would purchase your land and they would give it back to you. Because the year of jubilee was, yes, about the cancellation of debt, but it was also about the restoration of the very purposes of God. You were to be returned to the place that God always intended you to be. Friends, when Jesus receives the book of Isaiah, he scrolls down to the place where this jubilee mandate was uh, communicated. He reads it, and then he says the following. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying nothing less than I am the true jubilee. I have come to cancel your debts. I'm the one who has come to forgive your sin. I've come to cancel your debts. But more than that, I have come to restore you to be the person that you were always meant to be. The person that I created you to be. I'm here both to cancel debt. I'm here both to cancel debt, but also to restore you to become the person that you were always meant to be. I am the liberator. I free you from debt, but I am the restorer. I'm going to restore you back to be the person that you were meant to be. And friends, this mandate is incredible, and amazingly, this mandate becomes our mandate. The mandate of Jesus becomes our mandate. Because in Matthew 28, when Jesus commissions out his disciples to go into all the world and to preach the gospel, he also says, you need to teach them everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm going to be with you to the very ends of the age. So Jesus, in this moment, in this momentous moment, establishes his mandate. In fact, these verses become like an overture that gets played out in the rest of the New Testament. He describes what his mandate is. This jubilee mandate becomes Christ's mandate, but then it becomes the church's mandate, and it gets blown through history. And friends, let's just look for a moment what this mandate is, and, and, and check out whether it really resonates with the Monument Church here. The first thing is, clearly, that this mandate is all about Jesus, right? Because Jesus said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, we can be sure that actually the Jubilee mandate is actually about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Is this community about Jesus? Well, well I, I checked out your vision statement. Your vision statement begins pointing people to Jesus. This, this, this church here, although it's only been going four months, is about pointing people to Jesus. Why? Because only Jesus can cancel debt. Only Jesus can forgive sin. Only Jesus can restore people to become the people that they were always meant to be. If we're pointing to anything else, we're ripping people off. But we exist here to point people to Jesus because we believe that Jesus is in the business of forgiving sin. More than that, he's in the business of restoring people to become the people that they're meant to be. Secondly, we see that clearly it's about good news, right? The Jubilee 
When the Jubilee trumpet was blown, it was incredibly good news, right? If you were laden with death, the moment you heard the trumpet blast, it was like, woohoo! This is the best news ever. And the more in debt you were, right, the better news it was. Of course, if you were that super wealthy person that only pays cash and you don't have any debt, it wasn't good news, right? Like if you had it all together, it's like, I've got no debt, I've got no problem. In fact, oh no, the trumpet, oh, people owe me money. Ah, oh, this isn't good. This isn't good. But for the rest of us, it's incredibly good news, right? The trumpet blows and you go, praise God, that debt has gone. And the essence of the mandate of Jesus Christ is a declaration of good news, which means what? Christians ought to be happy, right? If you're a Christian and you're miserable and intending church makes you more miserable, there's something fundamentally wrong. They're not doing the jubilee thing. They're not blowing the trumpet. They're not declaring that debt has been canceled. They've forgotten something, right? The heart of it is that debt has been canceled. This is really good news. Being gospel-centered isn't like a new Christian fad. It's at the very heart of the gospel. We, we, we see this in actually the way Jesus quotes Isaiah 61. If you're really into Isaiah here, you'll know that Jesus doesn't quote the whole passage. He stops short. He stops at, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What's the next verse? And the day of vengeance of our God. Why doesn't he quote it? Is Jesus the first prosperity preacher in the Bible? Is he editing out the Bible? He just wants the happy verses to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But what about the day of vengeance? Shut up. We're just going to stop here. <laughs> Why is he doing that? Why is he doing that? Why doesn't he quote the day of vengeance? He doesn't quote the day of vengeance because he knew that he was going to experience the day of vengeance. He knew that he was going to be nailed to a cross. He knew that he was going to become our sin bearer. He knew he was going to receive the punishment that you and I deserved so that he could cancel our debt. He blows the trumpet, but friends, it wasn't without cost. It cost him his absolute life. Which is why the very heart of why we gather is to point people to Christ, but to declare the fact that he's paid the debt. He's died on the cross in order that we might be forgiven. He's died on the cross in order that our debt might be canceled. And friends, this reality, this reality of the good news of Jesus Christ changes everything. It changes everything. It changes things at a personal level. Do you know that Jesus Christ if you're a Christ follower here, has personally forgiven your sin? Do you know that he's canceled your debt? Because if you do, that should make you really happy and, and really amazed. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said he could tell whether a person really understood the gospel and that the gospel had really taken root in somebody's heart by the way that they would answer the question, are you a Christian? If somebody went up to somebody and said, hey, are you a Christian? If they really understood the gospel, Lloyd-Jones said, they would go, I know, isn't it crazy? I mean, it's like ridiculous, right? Like, I'm a Christian. I mean, only by God's grace. But if somebody didn't get the gospel, they would answer, of course I'm a Christian. How dare you suggest otherwise? I'm really good. 
I've really got it together. I'm really important. How dare you suggest that I'm not a Christian? Lloyd-Jones would say they don't really get the gospel. Friends, it is crazy. It is ridiculous that you are a Christ follower if you are. The only way that you become a Christ follower is if God himself becomes flesh and lives the perfect life that you could never, ever, 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 ever live and die on the cross and receive the punishment that you deserved. It takes an absolute miracle. He gets buried. He gets raised to life. It's only through all of those events taking place that results in you becoming a Christian. It is crazy that you're a Christian. And friends, this message of the gospel isn't just our kind of entry point into Christianity. It's how we sustain through our Christian life. Jesus inaugurates this good news message. And actually, if you do a full-on study in the gospel of Luke, what you discover is that Luke's got an issue with religious people. Luke has got a problem with people that think that they're right with God on their own merit. In fact, he's got a problem because Jesus has got a problem with it. And if you read through Luke, you'll see that there's time and time again this theme that comes up where, where this, the natural paradigms are blown up. The natural paradigms work like this, right? They're good people and bad people. And good people go to heaven and bad people go to the other place. And that's how it works, right? And you better be a good person because if you're not, you're not going to get into heaven. That's how everybody thinks. But when you read the Gospel of Luke, what you discover is that there aren't two categories. There are actually three. The first category is the good people. There isn't actually that category. Read carefully and it's not there. The category is bad. They're bad people. And then there are religious people, which is actually just a subset of bad. People who think that they're good enough to get in, but they're not. They're actually bad. And then the third category is rescued. People who have received the mercy and grace of God. Read the Gospel of Luke and you find bad, religious, rescued. And events keep on happening that you don't anticipate. So Luke 7, there's, the, there's Simon and there's the wayward woman, this prostitute. She comes in and it's like, yeah, 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 we get it. We know who the good guy is. It's Simon, the Pharisee, the homeowner, the person who's interested in Jesus, invites him to his home. He must be in and she must be out. And you end the story and she's in and he's out. Huh? I don't get it. And then next we see the story with somebody on the side of the road and all the good religious people, they're going to help. They go, no, 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 they don't. Then there's a Samaritan, the most hated person for a God-fearer, and he helps. Huh? I don't get it. And then Jesus tells a parable, they're two sons. One keeps all the rules. One does perfectly. That's the person that gets in, right? Because look at the other guy. The other guy asked for his inheritance early, which is, Dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. Give me the money. I love your stuff more than I love you. He gets the stuff, wine, woman, and song, absolutely crazy, nuts, goes mad, comes home. Dad, I'm really sorry. Dad loves him. Ring on the finger, family coat, huge party. The older brother's really bleak outside. The greatest moment of the father's life, the son has returned. The older one who keeps all the rules is outside and really upset. The father goes out to the older son. And he goes, what's the deal here? I've kept all the rules. I've done everything you've said. Now this one, this wild living son comes home and he's like just back in the fold. And the curtain closes in the story with the good guy who obeys all the rules still at enmity with his father 
while the wild living youngest son is back in the embrace of the father. And who does Jesus tell the parable to? He tells it to the Pharisees, teachers of the law, and to the tax collectors. What's Jesus saying? You teachers of the law, you are alienated from the father while tax collectors are coming in and getting saved. And then you get the rich young ruler who's got it all together. He's successful. He's obeyed all the laws. He goes away sad. And then you've got Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, the most hated person in Israel. Not just a tax collector, a chief tax collector. And he's the one that gets in. And throughout this gospel, it keeps on banging your head. Self-righteous people get bounced by Jesus. Those that are broken and needy and in debt get the year of Jubilee spoken over them. And if you're here this morning and you're new to church and you didn't really want to be in church because your experience of church is to encounter self-righteous people and you can't stand self-righteous people, I've got incredibly good news for you. Neither can God. God does not get on with self-righteous people. Read the gospel of Luke. The self-righteous get bounced. The broken, the sinful, the hurting who surrender to Christ get in. The good news of Jesus Christ changes everything. The good news of Jesus Christ changes everything. It ought to change church priorities. If at the very heart of what Christ has come is to cancel debt, then churches really ought to be on mission proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. If it is a priority, if it's the very essence of what Jesus is about, then it ought to be our priority. It ought to also change church ethos. If a church is a, is a gathering of people that were bankrupt and needed to be bailed out, then that ought to affect what church feels like. Martin Luther the great reformer prayed the following prayer. He said, may a merciful God preserve me from a Christian church in which everyone is perfect. I want to be and remain in a church and the little flock of the faint-hearted, the feeble, and the ailing who believe in the forgiveness of sin. Do you pray that prayer? God, please protect me from a perfect church. What? Are you mad? No. The very essence of the gospel means we're not perfect. And so if our ethos as churches, we've got it all together. I'm the perfect husband. Here's my perfect wife. Here are our perfect kids. Yeah, I'm, I'm the perfect work colleague. I'm per everybody's perfect. Just become like us and you'll be perfect. That's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. That isn't what he's declaring here. And so it ought to change the feeling and the atmosphere. So firstly, it's all about Jesus. Secondly, it's about good news. Thirdly, it's about being spirit-empowered. Notice Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is on me, for he has anointed me. Luke tells us in verse 14 that, that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the spirit. Or, or look at chapter 1 and verse 1, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. It is very evident that Jesus is empowered by the Spirit to do the work of the Father. And can I just suggest to you, if Jesus needed to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the work that he needed to do, I just want to suggest to you that you and I definitely need it, right? Like, I think if there was one person on planet Earth who didn't need the help of the Holy Spirit, I think we'd all go with Jesus, but he did. He was anointed. He was empowered. 
We definitely need it. If you're a visitor here today and you're not, you're not yet a Christian, maybe one of the things stopping you from becoming a Christian is you just think, man, I just don't think I could do it. I like certainly couldn't keep up this Christian thing. Like I just, it seems compelling. It looks great, but like I, I don't want to respond because if I, I just, I, I, I won't be able to keep it up. I've got some good news for you. You really can't. You really can't keep it up. Like the whole point of Christianity isn't just that you need Jesus to get in, but it's also that you need the Holy Spirit to carry on. You need God's empowering presence, the very empowering of God to be with you, to help you to live the Christian life that he's called you to. So if you're thinking, man, I, I just can't do it, you're right. That's why you need God. That's why you need to say, God, I don't, I don't need you just to save me. I need you to empower me to live the life that you're calling me to. This Holy Spirit is really important to empower us to live the Christian life. But more than that, we know from Ephesians chapter 4 is that the ascended Jesus pulls out his spirit and gives gifts to his church. The Bible teaches that every single Christ follower has received a supernatural gift in order that the body of Christ may be built up. How is a community changed? A community is changed when Christ followers gather together pointing to Jesus, proclaiming the good news of Christ, empowered by the Spirit, have a supernatural gift that they are using in order to build up the body of Christ. Do you know that you've got a gift? I don't know if you've read the book on love languages, the five little love languages. I just read the five. I didn't need to read the book. Like one of them is, you know, gifts. And then it's like, who doesn't feel loved? Who doesn't feel love receiving a gift? And without reading the book, I knew what my love language was. You've got a gift. God has given you a supernatural gift. Do you know about it? Are you using it? Are you deploying it? Communities that change the world are communities that are empowered by the Spirit. Fourthly, we see in this mandate that it's about social justice. Notice the mandate is good news for the poor, the prisoner, the blind, and the oppressed. It's like, I don't... I don't know if you know, Stephen, but we're really high-performing here, and we don't really like to hang out with the poor, the prisoner, the blind, the oppressed. That's not the community that we want to be a part of. But that is the community that Jesus is out to reach. Actually, that's why you're in. You just don't realize it, right? That's who he's after. That's who he's gunning for. Not lots of people in Washington, D.C. are after these people, but the real king of king is after the poor, the prisoner, the blind, the oppressed. It's in the text. So frustrating, isn't it? Really? Did you have to go after those? Really? Yes. And that's the very heart of the Jubilee mandate, right? The worse off you are, the better news it is. And Jesus just does this. The people we turn our faces away are the very people that he goes after. And he's the ultimate VIP, right? The ultimate VIP goes after the needy, the broken, the marginalized. That's why he's God and we're not, right? That's who he's after. And that's who we want to be after. Good news to the poor. Are you good news to the poor? Or are you no news or rude news? What are you? Jesus was good news. And then the fifth thing is, it's about all of life. Because if you've been tracking with me, you may think, man, this whole restoration thing sounds amazing, but how far does this thing really go? And we know from Revelation 21 verse 5 that Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. 
Jesus is in the business of restoring all things. Now, that will only ultimately take place with his return, but Christ's followers are committed to seeing the restoration of God's purposes on planet Earth. Abram Kaper once said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Which means that this restoration mandate involves you. Jesus wants to restore you to become the person that you're meant to be. But he wants to restore this community to be the community that they're meant to be. He wants to restore Gaithersburg to become what it was meant to be. And he wants to restore the greater Washington, D.C. area. And he wants to restore the ends of the earth. It means it affects our geography. It affects our job. It affects everything. If you're unemployed here... How can God renew your unemployment? Well, if you can be grateful to God, even in the midst of your unemployment, you'll be glorifying God. If you make the decision not to steal while you're unemployed, you will be glorifying God. If you seek work, you will be glorifying God because work is a good thing. And from God, no matter what station in life you're found in, there is an opportunity to glorify God and truly live for Him. Friends, this is what Monument Church is all about. Monument Church is about this mandate. It is about making much of Jesus. It is about proclaiming the good news about Jesus. It is about being empowered by the Spirit. It's about being good news to the poor. It's about seeing you equipped to apply the gospel in every area and sphere of your life. It's about this community modeling that and then this community multiplying to becoming other communities in different parts of the greater D.C. area so that Christ can be glorified. We committed to pointing people to Christ and planting churches in the greater D.C. area. We caught up on this mandate. Why? Because it was a really good idea of ours. No, because it's Jesus Christ's mandate and his mandate has become our mandate. And we want to see Jesus lifted up, empowered by the Spirit, in order to bring glory to God. And this is the perfect place to finish the sermon, right? Boom, right here. The moment, the mandate, let's go for it, let's do it. But there's a third point. <laughs> and the third point is this, the missed opportunity. The missed opportunity. Because you see, Jesus is in his hometown. He's made this awesome grand declaration that really just calls out faith. And yes, we're with you, Jesus. We want to follow you. What must we do? That's what it's crying out for. But what we get is indifference, unbelief, and overt persecution. Jesus goes, today, the scriptures fulfilled in your hearing. And they go, that's really sweet. That was a nice word. I'm glad they've got this guy coming back. It's really sweet. Isn't that Joseph's boy? Yeah, it's Joseph's boy. It's kind of crazy. It's like that scene from Despicable Me. Remember, Drew was really passionate about getting his mom's affection. He just, his mom just wouldn't take any interest in him. So when he's really young, he draws this drawing of. Uh, of this rocket ship, and he shows it to the mom, and the mom looks at it and goes, Neh. and then he makes a little model a few years later of the rocket ship, and she looks at it and goes, Neh. then at like age nine, he actually builds a real rocket. 
And his mom's sitting there reading, and he turns to her and he says, Look, mom, a real rocket made from the macaroni prototype. And then, this rocket shoots up from her garden, and she's like reading there, and she looks up and she goes, And that's what happens here. He's like, Today, the scripture is fulfilled, and you're hearing the guy, Isn't this Joseph's boy? This was meant to be the most incredible moment. This was meant to be in his hometown, amongst his own people, everybody going, yes, the kingdom of God has come. Awesome, let's do this thing. But that isn't what happens. Isn't this Joseph's son? And actually, by the end of the chapter, they're trying to kill him. What's going down here? What's going down here? Well, there's this huge tension going on. This tension between connoisseurs versus construction workers. These guys weren't ready for battle. They weren't ready for action. They weren't construction workers. And if you're a construction worker, you rock up at work on Monday, they give you a blueprint, and you know that your day is going to be about getting your hands dirty, about actually building something, and your very identity as a construction worker is what you build. Not so a connoisseur, right? Connoisseur doesn't work in that sense. They, they, they just test and judge other people's work. Hmm, quite nice. Hmm, could be better. Oh, very nice. We'll give that four stars. They just test things. They test other people's work. They don't actually do any work themselves, and that's what's going down here. Oh, this is really lovely, Joseph's boy. Really nice. They're connoisseurs. They're not construction workers. They're not trying to apply the very work of God. There's this battle of familiar versus faith. This grand declaration in Luke chapter 4 demanded a response of faith. I believe you, Jesus. You've canceled my deck. This is incredible. You want to heal me to become the person I'm meant to be. Now I can follow you. Instead, they get, oh, isn't this Joseph's boy? Maybe you're sitting here thinking, like, really? They got this guy all the way from Cape Town to read Luke 4? I mean, it's like, we, we know this stuff. There's nothing new here. Seriously, what a waste of time. You're just familiar. Know all, do nothing. You know, you, you know it all. They needed a response of faith. Hometown constraint versus liberating obedience. Jesus, you really should know better. If you really want stuff to happen here, we need to, get, we need to be onboarded on this. So you need to be really careful that we're into this and committed to this because if we're not, it's not going to happen. You need us. We're the people of God. Nothing big's happening without us. And Jesus says, you've got it completely wrong. I don't need you at all. I'm God. And part of being God is I get to do what I want. And think about it. There were loads of widows around at Elisha's time. But I didn't go to any of the widows in Israel. I went to a Gentile widow. And I provided for her over an extended period of time. And there were loads of people suffering with leprosy. And I chose to heal the Gentile of leprosy. I'm God. I'm not constrained by anybody. I can do what I want. I'm sovereign and in control. You don't control me. I'm the Lord of glory. And when they heard that, it's like, no. We're going to take you out. And actually, we know ultimately they do take him out. But even when they're taking him out, it's his sovereign plan and purposes to fulfill what he was all about, which was this very thing. And friends, the tragedy of Luke 4 
is that his very hometown missed out on the greatest show on planet Earth. Because what happens in the very next two stories that end Luke 4 is, Jesus casts out a demon. Jesus heals the sick. He starts doing his mandate. He doesn't just do this. He actually does it. He casts out demon. He heals the sick. Chapter 5, he calls disciples. You're going to do it as well. It's my mandate, but it's going to become your mandate. And so the challenge for us this morning is, are we going to believe Jesus? Or are we going to say, I can't really believe that those guys in his hometown did that. They're terrible. Of course, if we were there, it would have been totally different. Will it be different? Because the mandate still stands. And what this moment is crying out for is faith from you. Will you go, yes, Jesus? Will you go, please, Jesus, can we see the Jubilee mandate at work within me personally and with us as a church and with our commitments and involvements as a church? Will you respond with faith? Will you become a construction worker? Here's the blueprint. Cool. Let's build this. Let's do this thing. Will you become one who is into liberating obedience? Oh, Jesus, this is awesome. I just want to do this. I want to do this. Friends, please, if you're here today and, and you're just looking into this church, I just want to say to you, don't look in. Join in. Don't just look in, join in. If you've been here for a couple of months, don't just, well, I'm, I'm, I'll give it a few more Sundays before I decide to get involved. No, please, get involved. Get involved. This is Jesus' mandate, and we want to follow him. I believe with all my heart that God has got great plans and purposes for this church. Because you're committed to pointing people to Jesus. And you you committed to multiplying communities all over the greater D.C. area that are going to be faithful to this jubilee mandate. Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's get involved. Let's, let's be full of faith. Let's be radical in obedience to Jesus. Let's be construction workers that get our hands dirty for the glory of God and for the cause of Christ. Let's not allow unbelief and parochial thinking to stop us from engaging with the very plans and purposes of God. Can I say to you with all my heart, there is nothing more exciting than being on mission with Jesus Christ, actually doing this stuff, being part of a community that points people to Jesus, that believes in the good news of Jesus Christ and lives it out, that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, that is good news to the poor, that is seeking to live out the implications of the gospel in every sphere of life. When you're part of that kind of community, it is the most exciting place on planet Earth. And I don't want anybody to miss out on it. Please do not miss out on it. This is your moment. This is your time. This is today. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Please join in. Join in. Become a part of the action. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we just want to thank you that you blew the trumpet. Thank you that you blew the trumpet. Thank you that you declared the year of Jubilee. Thank you, Jesus, that you have come to forgive our sins. More than that, Lord, we thank you that you want to restore us to become the people that we were always meant to be. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you that we get to experience the year of the Lord's favor because you took the day of vengeance. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for receiving my punishment. And Lord, I thank you that you're in the business of 
joining Jubilee communities together that are focused on you, proclaiming your good news, empowered by the Spirit, good news to the poor, living for you in every area of their life. And Lord, I want to pray for Monument, Lord, that you would mobilize and catalyze this people to make your name famous in the greater D.C. area. Lord, I pray that in our day, we would be those that live for you, that believe you, that become construction workers, that have a liberal, radical obedience to you, and believe that greater things are yet to come in the city. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.